Bible that is in the pew, it's on 1051, 1051. I'm sure many of you have noticed on the back of the flyer for prayer day, I would like to begin uh, just by reading out of Psalm 116, verse 1 and 2, and, and just think of the beautiful relationship that the psalmist had with God uh, to be able to say this. And, and I believe that this building is full of individuals that can praise God with these very same words. I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my supplications, because he has inclined his ear to me. Therefore, I will call upon him as long as I live. What a blessing it is today. I love the Lord because he has heard our prayer all day long. Isn't it wonderful to have the privilege to pray to God at any time, any time individually or coming together as a group? God always wants to hear our prayer. And that privilege from God also comes as a responsibility. Prayer for a disciple of Jesus is not an option. It is something that God requires of us because it's impossible for us to become what we can be without prayer and it's impossible for us to enjoy all that God has designed for us to obtain and enjoy without the privilege of prayer. When we think about James, the fourth chapter, at the end of verse 1 and end of verse 2, he gives us two quick principles. He teaches there that sometimes we have not because we ask not. And then in the next verse he says, sometimes we don't have because we ask amiss according to the flesh or according to the lust of our flesh. Think about that as we begin tonight. First he says, I wanted to give it to you, but we work this a certain way, the way that I've designed it, God is saying. The way I've designed it is I want you to learn to depend upon me. It's a fact we must and need to depend upon God, but God's not going to make us realize that. God's not going to force that in a part of our daily life. And God says, if you want to depend upon me, if you're willing to submit and humble yourself and call upon me in prayer, I have a lot of things in store for you that I'll give. But then the second thing that he says is he says, oftentimes we don't have because we ask according to the flesh, the passions of this world and of our carnal nature. What is it that you want? What is it that you would ask in prayer? Does it always come down to physical being and earthly possessions? I believe that God would want us to pray about those things. But is that what it always comes down to? What is it that drives you to your knees? Where when you hear a particular situation in your life or someone else's life, when you know that there is a certain need, what is it that makes you say, I've got to go find a quiet place, I must get on my knees and I must pray about it? Is it always health-related physically, physical health-related? Or is it that the things that really drive you to a quiet place to your knees, are they generally spiritually related? Anton Chekhov was a Russian writer in the late 1800s that wrote a short story. 
And in this story, he wrote it to help us evaluate what are our values. There was a middle-aged banker. He was very, very wealthy, very successful. And he drew the conclusion that for someone to be executed, that that was far too merciful because it was an immediate death. And that solitary confinement was what an individual deserved because it was a gradual death. When he presented this at a party one night, a young lawyer challenged that. He was only 25 years old. And he challenged saying, do you realize all of the benefits and blessings one could have in solitary confinement? Because after all, they still have life. The banker challenged that notion. As a matter of fact, in his arrogance, he said, I will bet you two million rubles if you stay in solitary confinement for five years. The arrogance of the lawyer replied, I'll accept your bet, except I will raise it. I will take your two million rubles, but only at the end of 15 years of solitary confinement. They arranged the situation of the particular building that they would board up on the estate of the banker's, the banker's estate. He would see no one during this time, only having meals slip to him. He would receive no newspapers and no incoming mail. He could write letters and he could receive books and instruments. His first year, he decided he wanted to play the piano. He had a piano moved in and almost any hour of the day, you could hear him pecking, learning how to play the piano. He asked for books that were like reeds and by his second year, He didn't play nearly as much piano and read a lot of the deeper reads. By his sixth year, he decided he wanted to learn languages and many of them. And so over the next few years, he mastered six different languages. And by his tenth year, he'd grown bored of all of those things and decided that he would try reading a book that he had not yet opened that had been in his room the whole time, the Holy Bible. He read the New Testament many times and was intrigued with the wisdom that was therein. And he became intrigued with theology and began to ask for other books that he could study to learn more about God and a different value system. The second half of the story tells all about the night before his 15th anniversary. You see, it was then... The banker was an old man, and his fortune had almost dwindled away. But this story was known all around the world, and he knew he had to pay the two million rubles, which was going to leave him with nothing. So he decided that night that he would break into the man's room. He would murder him and frame it to look like a guard did it. And that night, as he quietly broke into the room he noticed that as the man was asleep at a table, there was a letter that had been pinned to the banker. He took the time first to read that letter. And what he read caused more pain and more grief than any of the losses that he had ever experienced. He says these words in this letter that was addressed to the banker. Tomorrow at 12 o'clock, I shall be free. 
But before leaving this room, I find it necessary to say a few words to you. With a clear conscience and before God who sees me, I declare to you that I, am, that I despise freedom and life and health and all that your books call the joys of this world. I know I am wiser than you all, and I despise all of your books. I despise all earthly blessings and wisdom. All is worthless and false, hollow and deceiving like the mirage. You may be proud, wise, and beautiful, but death will wipe you away from the face of this earth as it does the mice that live under your floor. And your heirs, your history, your immortal genius will burn with the destruction of the earth. You have gone mad, and you are not following the right path. You take falsehood for truth and deformity for beauty. To prove to you how I despise all that you value, I renounce the two million on which I looked at one time as the opening of paradise for me, at which now I scorn. And to deprive myself of the right to receive the two million, I will leave my prison five hours before the appointed time, and by so doing, break the terms of our compact. And he signed his name. The man quietly with tears in his eyes, left the room. And at seven the next morning, he was told by a guard that the lawyer had broken out of his room five hours early. And he was free from his bed. What do you value? To you, is there a certain amount of money that would just make everything right? Is there a certain measure of health that would just make everything right? Or is it that we could honestly say we spend much more time in prayer about people's souls? That our tears are shed when we think about individuals that are losing their faith. That the thing that, that, that brings us to great concern is false doctrine. The breaking of unity. The turning our backs on what God has designed for us to become and to reach one day. It's no strange thing for whenever Paul would write in his epistles to be riding along and then just simply break into a prayer. As a matter of fact, if you have your Bible open there to our text, you're, you're there in 2 Thessalonians. If, if you back up just probably a page in your Bible, in 1 Thessalonians, the third chapter, he's riding along and then he gets to verse 11, 12, and 13. And, and he doesn't say, I want to tell you about a prayer. He just starts praying for them. At the end of the fifth chapter, by the time we come to the 23rd verse, again, he just goes straight into a prayer for them. This is common in almost every epistle that Paul wrote. But there is something just a little bit different. And, and because of that, it's interesting to study it from this angle. When we read in 2 Thessalonians, the first chapter, what he does different is instead of saying, I want to say this prayer for you, he says to them, I want to tell you my prayer list that I have always prayed for you. Isn't that awesome? Paul is saying, I want to tell you what I've prayed for you over and over and over. And here's what he says in the 11th verse of 2 Thessalonians, the first chapter. He says, therefore, we also pray always for you that our God would count you. Notice there's three things here in this verse. Verse 11, that our God would count you worthy of this calling. 
And second, fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power. And then there's a fourth thing, that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul looks to these individuals in Thessalonica. Notice back at the beginning of it in in 2 Thessalonians, the first chapter in verse 3. Notice as he says, We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting, because your faith grows exceedingly, and the love of every one of you all abounds toward each other. Paul You heard that the people in Thessalonica, that their faith was growing and their love for each other was growing. Paul, when you heard that, what was your reaction? He says, I was bound. I was bound that I had to go to my knees and I had to thank God for what was happening. Well, what is meant by that? Do you think Paul literally spent much of his time in prayer? He was busy. He was a missionary in demand. He had long journeys to travel. He had books to write. He had the masses to reach. But do you remember the attitude of the apostles in Acts the 6th chapter? You remember in Acts the 6th chapter when the widows, some of them with the Grecian background, were being neglected? And you remember this was the infancy of the church. This was before the elders and the deacons. This was when the apostles were leading the church. And you remember they come to the apostles telling them of the murmuring and complaining because there were widows being neglected. Now what's more important? Is taking care of a hungry widow more important than prayer? The reason I ask it that way is I just want to challenge myself and I want to challenge you. When we get so busy to a certain extent, we change something. And it's probably different for all of us. But there is that point in our schedule where we say, something's got to break. I either have to have more help in what I'm doing, or I have to back out and stop doing some things. Can you imagine being a leader of the first century church? And where where is that breaking point? Where is that point where the apostles say, can't do it. We have to have some more help. It was when widows were in need of food. And the reason they said they couldn't stop to feed the widows was because they said they must continue their ministry in the Word of God and in prayer. That makes me shudder. That makes me wonder, how far off base am I? What is it that we need to take out of our lives so that we would say, it doesn't matter how good it is. If it is taking me away from a fervent prayer life, I have to make time for prayer. Paul could write in passage after passage, in city to city, saying to all of them, let me tell you what I pray for you. How many of us have been on mission trips? And other than today, on this special day, and I know there's some of you that can honestly say, I pray every day for those places. But how many of us can't say that? 
How many of us have been places like Paul and we can't say, this is my regular prayer list for you because I realize I am bound. As a disciple of Jesus Christ, I am bound to pray for you. Do we feel bound to pray for each other? And why is it that we are so quick to pray for someone's heart surgery, but yet someone else has a heart that's turning away from God, and sometimes our urgency isn't nearly as great? Find how many times Paul says, I want you to pray for me to have a more comfortable trip. The last trip was really hard. I want you to pray for me to have a more comfortable prison stay. My last prison stay was really hard. I want you to pray that that those of you in Thessalonica, I hear that so-and-so has had pneumonia. I hear so-and-so has had the flu. I hear so-and-so is having a tough time. Again, I'm not saying those things aren't important. Friends, what did Paul bring before the Father? Things that he brought before the Father over and over. Look back at that list again. Number one in verse 11, what he's always, always praying for them is I want our God to count you worthy of this calling. Most of the time in the New Testament, as a matter of fact, it may be almost all the time, but most of the time in the New Testament, the word calling, when it's used in this context, it's talking about salvation. He says, I want you to walk worthy of your calling. It's used that very same way in Ephesians, the fourth chapter, when in verse one, Paul tells them that he wants them to walk worthy of the calling for which they have been called. In other words, the calling is what? Salvation. We're out here in the world, we're lost, and we want to be saved. We want to live this life with Jesus Christ. And so Paul says, you realize when you are saved, now that is a tremendous transformation and there is a certain life we have to live here and we have to live this life worthy. I'll be honest with you, for years, and you're probably going to say, wow, he really kind of dwindles his mind over weird things. I still don't know what to do with those marquees that have been around for the last 15 years that says, come as you are. That makes absolutely no sense to me in any sense of the word. I've even mentioned it to Tracy before years ago, and I was like, "What, what are people trying to say? Are they trying to say, hey, if you have blue jeans on, come to church? Are they trying to say, hey, come to the Lord just like you are? How can you come to the Lord just like you are when the Lord says, if you're going to come after me, deny yourself, crucify how you are, repent from how you are, turn around and come to me. And then Paul says, oh, by the way, I've got a prayer for you. What's that prayer, Paul? He says, when you do come to him, The calling is so high. The worth of that calling is so high. I'm praying that you're able to live that life because it's no joke. It's not easy. My prayer is that you'll be able to live worthy of the calling of which you have been called. Friends, we know of organizations, workplaces, and clubs that that have, and professions that have standards of ethics. And you either live up to that calling or you're out. Friends, the highest calling we will ever be a part of is Christianity. And Paul realizes we either live it or we don't. And he says to those of Thessalonica, who, by the way, the pages we just, the verses we just skipped over in the first chapter, they have endured tremendous persecution. They're people of great faith. It's not that they're, that, that they're off course here. He's just talking about, this is my prayer for you. 
My prayer is that you can live worthy of that calling. But then he says, second, he says, second, my prayer is for you that you will be, that you will fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness. What's his goodness? His goodness is involving all the opportunities that we have to do good. I think about the passage in 2 Corinthians, the, the ninth chapter. In 2 Corinthians, the ninth chapter, he's just talked a whole lot about giving. And then he talks about how we would use our resources and how we would have those resources returned to us. And he says in 2 Corinthians 9 and 8, and as we read this or as you listen together to this, I'd like for you to notice about every good work. In other words, what is the good pleasure of the goodness of God? In 2 Corinthians 9 and and 8, he's just talked about giving and, well, this whole chapter here almost, he's just talked about giving. And now look at verse 8. And God who is able to make all grace abound. And grace here is not just the saving grace. Grace here is used as a gift. God is able to make all gifts abound to us. Look at the resources he's given us. When you go home tonight, look around your house. Think about what your portfolio is. Think about the cars you drive. Think about the opportunities he gives you with neighbors and at workplaces. Think about the opportunities he gives us as a church family. And and we think about all of this grace that abounds to us. God is able to make all grace abound toward you. Why? That you always, having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for what? For every good work. He has just talked about giving and he says, don't worry about giving too much. God will make sure and restore what you've given so that the next time a good, good opportunity comes along, the grace will abound, the gifts will abound, and you'll have what you need for that next good opportunity. And then what did Paul say here in in Thessalonians in the second chapter? He said, my prayer is for you that, that it would be fulfilled. We're talking about full, running over the top. This is what he says, I pray for this for you. I want you to have fullness of what? Good pleasure in goodness. I want you to know that feeling. And I want it to be overflowing in your life of how it feels to use your life for good things. I think about one of our young people that shortly after they became a Christian... They were very active in a good work of helping some people. And I think about that young person picking up the phone and and calling me and saying, this is what we were able to just accomplish. And then that young person said, this is the best feeling I've ever had in my life. Do you realize that is real? That's what Paul is talking about here. Paul says, I want you to be full. I want you to be fulfilled of what? The good pleasure... Of God's goodness. Friends, there's nothing like the life of living for others. There's nothing like the life of saying, my health is given so that I can live to serve others and glorify God. The resources God has given me is to serve others and glorify God. And with that comes good pleasure. You reverse that. My resource is for me. My resources is to pile up more. My resources is for me to have pleasure. In other words, that becomes the end. That becomes our goal. I want to have pleasure. And you know what happens? We never find the real ultimate pleasure. But notice the third thing that he says at the end of verse 11. And the work of faith with power. 
There is one faith. It's a system of belief that comes through the following of the New Testament. Romans 10, 17, it comes from the Word of God, from hearing the Word of God. We know that it is, it is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things seen. Hebrews 11 and 1. What about this one faith? He says, I want you to be fulfilled in this faith with power. In other words, I want this system of belief, I want it to be so active in your life that it makes a powerful difference in your life and how you influence other people. As we think about that faith, and keep in mind, we're talking about prayer. This is what Paul prayed. Look with me, if you will, to a passage that I I just love thinking about this. Look at Luke, the 22nd chapter. Luke, the 22nd chapter. I would love to hear your feedback of what you think when you study and meditate upon this passage. This is one of those passages that, that just to think this really happened really, really sets us back to say, I've got to give that deeper thought. There is so much here out of what generally comes across as a very basic story, but there's so much to this. Now, we're talking about Paul praying for the work of faith and power in the Thessalonians' life. But, but now, look here in Luke, the 22nd chapter. Jesus, he prayed for Peter's work of faith in his life. Notice how it goes in verse 31, Luke 22 and 31. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. Pause there for a moment. Can you imagine Jesus right now praying? And by the way, Simon, I prayed that your fishing business would would be able to do twice the business this next year as it did last year. By the way, Simon, I knew that you've been not feeling well lately. And so, by the way, I just prayed that you'd feel better. I'm not trying to belittle looking to God for physical needs. My fear is, is that our greatest concern? Physical needs and possessions ought to be third, fourth, fifth, sixth on our prayer list. We're never going to find anywhere in the New Testament where physical health and possessions trumps spiritual life and souls. We're in a war. And you better believe that just like Satan asked, Satan asked, I want to sift Peter. I want to sift him like wheat. I want to take and shake him up so that I break the grain away from the chaff. And I want to see part of him blow with the wind. And I want to see part of him going through the grinding mill. I want to sift him like wheat. Jesus, what are you going to do? Satan is asking for the soul of Peter. What's Jesus going to do? He's powerful. Out of all the things he could do, what's he going to do? Look at this next verse in 32. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. He prayed for his faith with power. You're going to make some mistakes, brother. My prayer is that you won't leave that faith altogether. My prayer is that you'll return. And my prayer is that when you return, your faith will be with power. You'll make a difference in the lives of others. Peter, I have a plan for you. I want you to stand on that first day that the Christian church meets. 
And I want you to be the one that strengthens the brethren. I want you to be the natural leader among the apostles. I want you to be the one that strengthens the brethren. Jesus, if you want Peter to do that, what are you going to do? And he says, I'm going to pray for him. I'm going to pray that through his battles, his faith will be fulfilled with power. And in that last verse in 2 Thessalonians 1, he said that God may be glorified in you. This is his fourth thing he prayed for. That God may be glorified in you and you in him. All these things that he prayed for them was about the glory of God. It's not about us. It's about the cause that we're a part of. It's about the family of God that we're a part of. That's why we have to forgive. It's not us and and our hurts. It's about the glory of God and and the way I live with, with disagreements that I've had with other people. Do I handle that in such a way that I've handled it in a way that gives God all the glory? Or have I handled it in such a way that I've made my point? And when we, when we have downfalls in our life, and it takes a lot of pride swallowed to get up out of a pew and come down in front of your brothers and sisters and say, I'm wrong, and I'm sorry. I've hurt God, and I've hurt His family, and I want forgiveness. If our glory is about us, that will never happen. But when our glory is about God, you can't stop it from happening. Because it's what God wants. Tonight and every day. Let's take every concern. He says in 1 Peter 4, 1 Peter 5 and verse 7, He says, cast your cares upon me. For I care for you. You have a physical care, God cares. You have a care about possessions, God cares. But let's make sure that those cares are far secondary to the things that really, really matter. Where are you going to spend eternity? That's the greatest care we'll cast upon God. Where's the brother and sister down your pew right now and across the room from you right now? Where are they going to spend eternity? That's what matters. The people that live on your street, where are they going to spend eternity? That's what matters. Are we giving God the glory in our heart and what we treasure and what we value? Tonight, God's blessed us with a good day. God's been willing to listen to us all day long. And He'll continue over into the night. God's faithful to us. He's never once let us down. And through our weaknesses, He'll take us back. And tonight, if you need to come to Him to be saved, immersed into Christ for the remission of sins, or maybe to return to Him, it's been the prayer. It's been the prayer frequently that we all would grow closer to Him. No one on this earth, in this room, has arrived yet. But let's make sure that we all leave here on that journey. And if we can help you come as we stand, as we sing.